From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's October, but record-setting wildfires continue to burn across the state. We have to really start to ask ourselves, what's our relationship with fire? And really, what type of fire do we want? This bad, raging fire? Or do we want something that helps us, and ultimately that we can adapt to? Also, a closer look at the ballot measure to raise the tobacco tax and tax e-cigarettes. Why opponents call it a backroom deal. Then, after a protest turns deadly in Denver, the fallout includes conspiracy theories, fake posts, and more. So people are defensive, angry, scared. They already exist in a polarized climate, and it's an ambiguous situation, so everything gets filtered through their political lens. Marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it. But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talk to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef and a neurologist on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. A wildfire burning by Grand Lake quadrupled in size overnight. The East Troublesome Fire has now burned more than 125,000 acres. Hundreds of people were forced to evacuate late Wednesday night. Among those evacuees, Will Crossland. Hi, Will. Hi, how's it going? Going all right. And Emma Trainer, publisher of Sky High News in Grand County, where the fire is burning. Hi, Emma. Hi there. Will, you had to evacuate late last night, and you tweeted a video of the smoke and fire in Grand Lake. Where are you now, and what are you seeing this morning? Um, I'm just down the road in Fraser, Colorado, um, right outside of Winter Park. And um, skies are a bit more clear here, but you can see the plume off in the distance, and it does not look good. And compare the smoke that you're seeing this morning with what you experienced last night. Um, it's hard to compare because yesterday it was coming right at us and over on top of us and made it feel like you were in a dome of smoke surrounded by 13,000 foot peaks. But um, this morning it's more in the distance, so um, it's kind of hard to get a sense and it's uh, hard to get any pictures out of the Grand Lake area. So we're just kind of crossing our fingers and hoping um, we get some good news. Yeah, we've heard from our reporters in the area that the air just feels heavy. Will, you moved to the Grand Lake area to avoid COVID-19 in Metro Denver and to save on rent. What's going through your mind as you think about trying to escape one threat only to face another? Um, It's just one crisis to the next this year, I guess. Um, I'm not too worried about myself personally. Uh, My heart really goes out to the people who make their livings up there. I... um, simply a vacationer for the most part and took advantage of not having to go into the office, but my heart um, is really with those who um, work their tails off day in, day out, so they can afford to live in such a amazingly beautiful place, and um, also the first responders who are out there risking their lives today to save our homes. And you call yourself a vacationer. I understand that you spent your childhood in Grand Lake, so is this hard to process, I guess? Uh, yeah, it's extremely hard to process, and I don't really think I 
begun processing it fully yet. Um, you know, natural fires are a common and natural occurrence in old growth forests like this. Um, but with the speed that it went at and just how quickly everything happened, um, it's a lot of emotions swelling and a lot of memories um, as I was driving out of town of looking at spots on the lake that I knew I might not never see look the same again. Hmm. And Will, what are your plans today as an evacuee? Have you been giving any, any instructions about what to do? Um, no, it's just kind of sit and wait. The highway's still closed. Um, just hoping we can get some images out of the area. Um, I know there's been some brief updates and the crews are working hard to work on the fire, um, but it's just a waiting game at this point. And Emma Trainer, let's bring you in here. You're the publisher of Sky High News based in Granby. You live in Grand County, but not in the evacuation zone. This is still deeply personal, though. I understand your husband is deputy sheriff and he wound up in a scary situation last night. Yeah. Um, so as we're trying to cover the community and um, and just keep people as informed as possible, um, my husband and father-in-law were out on the front lines, you know, trying to help get people evacuated. And my husband, along with several other deputies, were trying to evacuate a neighborhood when the fire um, went over their egress and they had to drive through the fire front um, to safety, unable to make it to those homes. I have no idea um, if those homes hopefully were already evacuated, um, but their vehicles sustained damage and thankfully they're all okay. I'm glad to hear that they're okay. Your reporters, thankfully, they haven't had to evacuate. What are you and your team seeing this morning? Um, similar to what Will said, um, you know, the there is a, a large plume. You can tell that the, the fire is already active, but it's definitely off in the distance. It seems to be on the north side of the fire um, today, from what we can tell. So it's uh, it's not nearly as scary of a scene as it was um, last night with that flame front coming at Granby and Grand Lake area. And what do we know about firefighting efforts today? Um, as far as we can tell, they are just still actively um, trying to um, protect all of the values at risk up there. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their their plan of attack is, but they are working hard. They worked around the clock based on scanner traffic, um, just trying to protect as many homes as they could. Um, but I do know that they're expecting similar uh, weather and fire behavior today. So it will. we will just have to see as the day progresses. And do we have a sense at this point of what buildings or how many buildings have been destroyed? At this point, we have no idea. Um, from what we understand, the sheriff's office goes in and assesses those damages and notifies the homeowners before they ever make that information public. So um, I think it's going to be a, a waiting game. I think... Um, I can't speak for them. We don't have any word officially, but I do think that um, they're still just actively trying to fight this fire. And I think damage assessment is probably down the road at this point. And in the course of just a week, this fire has already become the fourth largest in recorded state history. Are you surprised by how quickly it spread? Absolutely. I mean, we knew that it could be a threat um, and it was burning in very dense um, wooded areas, um, which was good because there weren't very many values where it started. 
but um, we knew that it could spread, but not this quickly. It it was insane how fast that fire uh, went yesterday. I I heard um, on one of the updates that it was moving at I think six thousand acres, um, um, an hour I think is what it was. And you and your team, you're also talking with people who've had to evacuate from this very fast-moving fire. And some of the folks you've spoken to at the shelter really spoke to that speed also, right? Yeah, our editor, Eli Pace, spoke to a gentleman at the evacuation center last night who had his jacket and his cell phone, and that was it. He had to evacuate so quickly that he said he even forgot his wallet and wasn't able to grab anything else. And Will, I want to bring you back in here. Have you been able to connect with other people who have evacuated? Um, yeah, of everybody that I knew who was in town, um, everybody was able to get out safely. Most people went and stayed with friends or family in Denver, the Winter Park area. Um, but yeah, luckily it is mud season right now and um, it's about the quietest time of year we have up there. So luckily this wasn't peak tourist season with thousands upon thousands of more people in harm's way. And how much time did you have to evacuate? Did you have much time to pack or were you prepared to leave given that there was fire nearby? Um, I was kind of watching it the past few days. Um, I knew that there was a good chance I was going to have to evacuate just because 34 was probably going to have to close. Highway 34. Um, I got a pre-evacuation notice around 6.30, I believe. Um, I packed a couple bags and got some family photos and by 6.50 or 7.15, um, the mandatory evacuation came, and I um, got out of there within a few minutes. Well, Emma and Will, I want to thank you both so much for joining us, and I hope that you both stay safe and well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Emma Trainer is publisher of Sky High News in Grand County. Will Crossland is among the hundreds of people who have had to evacuate from the Grand Lake area. We have photos of the East Troublesome Fire at CPR.org. Hundreds of thousands of acres have burned this year in Colorado. Even as the state wrestles with new fires and fresh tragedy, the Cameron Peak Fire is still burning in northern Colorado, and it's the largest in recorded state history. We've been sharing the stories of people who have had to flee their homes in places across the state. For evacuees like Marion Hale in Boulder County, the uncertainty is daunting. One of the hardest things with forest fires is, you know, you don't just lose a structure. You don't just lose your house. You lose the environment and the habitat, and it takes decades for trees to grow back. We're going to talk about big picture solutions now. Pam Wilson has spent much of her career in the world of fire prevention and mitigation in the southwest corner of the state. She worked for the U.S. Forest Service in the Fire and Fuels Program. She went on to lead FireWise of Southwest Colorado, and she serves on the board of Fire Adapted Colorado, both nonprofits focused on wildfire mitigation and prevention. Thanks for joining us, Pam. Thank you, Avery. Glad to be here. And Jonathan Bruno has also worked closely with communities on maintaining forest health, as well as working to restore lands impacted from recent wildfires and natural disasters. Jonathan runs operations for the Coalition for the Upper South Platte, a group that works to protect the watershed in that region. He's also a wildland firefighter. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you, Avery. appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. 
Okay, we're going to start out with the fifty thousand foot question, and I'll ask both of you to respond based on what you're seeing: these big fires burning all over the state, some of the largest in history, and the challenges in containing them. Is there hope? Yeah, it, it is tough to to look at these big fires, and I feel for a, a lot of the communities um, and, and a lot of the residents here in the state that have been impacted. With that said, there's there's a lot of、um, opportunity. That we can find within these big fires, and we need to look at some of the reasons behind why these fires are growing so big. We have to really start to ask ourselves some hard questions、um, about how we,、uh, as as a society, live in the forest, and and we have to make some changes. And Pam, do you have hope? I certainly do. I think that residents are really beginning to wake up and understand. The dangers that are presented to them—it's been hard not to be aware of what's going on in the world、um, over the past five, ten, fifteen years with some of these larger fires and the fact that they keep getting bigger and bigger. So I think that we are seeing more and more communities recognizing that this isn't just a U.S. Forest Service problem or a State Forest Service problem or a fire department problem, but it's something that we need to deal with together. You know, just in Colorado alone, I'm I'm so proud to live in this state because there are wildfire councils and watershed groups scattered across the state, all trying to make a difference, and all of them are working with local partners to make that difference. And that's just so key to really wrapping our arms around this problem and starting to make a difference. And with so many fires burning in the West. A silver bullet solution would be great, but the work that both of you do really seems to stress that there isn't a top-down strategy that could fix wildfire problems in every community. So, what does a more grassroots approach look like? So, I think a grassroots approach, an organic approach, really starts with the residents wanting to take action, and their motivation spurs other land managers. To take action on their lands adjoining those private lands, the State Forest Service and the U.S. Forest Service have different types of agreements where, you know, they can do some work on their lands. But sometimes they're reluctant to take action if the homeowners haven't taken any action. So to me, that grassroots or organic approach really starts with the homeowner. Pam, I fully agree. I think that, you know, this this is such a complex problem. Um, we don't want to see crown fires like we see on the news. So the the types of fire behavior we're seeing in Colorado right now, that's not what we want to see. We want to see fire that's frequent on the landscape. As a professor in Arizona, Stephen Pines says, we want to see light fire. Ultimately, those type of fires that are historically a part of the Colorado. Ecosystem, sort of these lower intensity, smaller fires that、uh, burn the understory. They can provide an amazing opportunity for understory species. So you can close your eyes and you head into a ponderosa pine stand here on the the front range. You can imagine the the grasses and there's berries that are growing and, and shrubs and、um, you can see the elk herd and the wild turkeys. And that's really how fire. Historically, played a role on some of these lower elevation ecosystems. Is it burned through, and, and it really helped to create that forage for for the animals, and and it creates in some places park-like settings 
So as we're as we're thinking about silver bullets, what we have to do is we have to really start to ask ourselves what's our relationship with fire and really what type of fire do we want? Do we want this bad raging fire or or do we want something uh, that helps us that we can work with and and ultimately that we can adapt to? We have to engage people from all different demographics. We have to look around and ask people, why do you live here? What do you love about this place? What's what's important to you? And then we have to work together to protect that. And so that's taking a proactive approach versus the current reactive approach that we use. Yeah, and I do want to get into that human side of this, because what you're describing, it involves a lot of, I think you were used the word adaptation. People might have to change not only behaviors, but also maybe something about where they live or the types of homes that they build. So Pam, talk with me more about community involvement and how you get buy-in from people in communities to protect their homes or neighborhoods. And what does that look like? Sure. And if I could, I'd actually like to give you a an example that I think takes it back to that grassroots approach and ties into what John was just discussing with prescribed fire. So I was working with a community in Southwest Colorado and the U.S. Forest Service had stepped forward and said, you know, we'd really like to do a prescribed burn around this subdivision. And the forest surrounded it, the subdivision on three sides. And they were working with the fire department and uh, the fire department said, well, you know, we'd be willing to be there for structure protection. However, not until there's a lot more work done in the community. And um, I wrote a grant for the fire department to do mitigation work within that subdivision, subdivision of maybe, I think, 85 homes. Pretty much all of them got mitigated. And the Forest Service was then able to come in and do a prescribed burn. It came to within 50 feet of the boundary fence of that subdivision. It took five days. The Forest Service spent a tremendous amount of money doing it because just due to the proximity of homes, they really wanted to make sure that that fire was not going to get away from them. And, um, you know, afterwards, the district ranger said to me, that was one of the longest weeks of my life <laughs> um, because there was just that fear that the fire could get away, you know, and, and that's what most people remember about prescribed fires are the ones that get away. Well, in this instance, we actually had homeowners that were saying, I want them to come burn on my property now because the mitigation work had been done. They saw the benefits on the land next to them. And it worked out to just be a win-win for everybody. And was this an overnight process? Absolutely not. This was probably five years in the making, you know, and that's the hard part sometimes when we start trying to figure out how to engage residents, especially those that live next to public lands, because the government doesn't always move fast. But in this case, the approach that was taken where they kind of gave the heads up, hey, four or five years from now, we'd love to be able to do a prescribed burn on this section of forest. They got the fire department engaged, they got the residents engaged, and it worked out very successfully. So what you're describing, people didn't necessarily have to move out of a fire-prone area, but they had to mitigate their properties to manage the fire risk properly. What is mitigation? What did they have to do? Well, mitigation is generally 
clearing, not clearing, reducing the amount of vegetation around their home. A lot of our ponderosa pine forests in Colorado have a significant amount of gamble oak underneath the trees, which can serve as what we call a ladder fuel. It's a type of vegetation that can carry the fire up into the crown of the trees. You want to reduce those so that you're not getting that fire moving up into the tops of the trees. A lot of it can be as simple as raking the mulch away from your home. You know, there, there's just different actions that you can take. And Jonathan, we hear from climate scientists that as the climate continues to change, wildfires are likely not to go away and make it worse as there's continued drought and heat and beetle kill. How much do you think about holistic fire prevention and adaptation in the context of climate change? So I think it's important that as we talk about this uncertain future that we're entering into, we have to make sure that we're clear on two terms that we live by. And so when we say preventing fire, that that means something entirely different than mitigating the risk. And mm-hmm. so I, I heard you say preventing. Preventing a fire is is really focused in on let's stop human-caused ignitions. Let's make sure that people are being safe. And that's prevention. Mitigation is an action we take because we know there will be fire. And there will be good fire. There will be bad fire. And so as we're looking at climate change, we have to realize that Colorado is in extreme drought. Uh, Temperatures have been increasing. Things are changing. So we have to start thinking about how how we adapt to this new reality that we live within. As Pam spoke about, you know, mitigating um, the individual at the individual level, we too have to start thinking as Coloradans, as people of the United States of, of this world, we have to start saying, okay, as things heat up, as uh, water resources potentially are depleted, how are we going to adapt? And so we need to start looking at the places that we're living. You know, Pam said very well about prescribed fire that people didn't have to move out of the way. We can still live in, in some of these areas, but we can't do it haphazardly. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing some hope about possible solutions. Well, thank you for asking us. Thanks so much. And, and of course, um, our prayers and thoughts go out to the families impacted and, and uh, the firefighters and first responders out there. Thank you so much for the time. Jonathan Bruno runs operations for the Coalition for the Upper South Platte, a group that works to protect the watershed that provides drinking water for Denver and the surrounding cities. He's also a wildland firefighter. Pam Wilson is from Durango. She serves on the board of Fire Adapted Colorado, a nonprofit that works with communities to mitigate wildfire risks. When we come back, the ins and outs of Prop EE, the statewide ballot measure to increase the current tobacco tax and to start taxing e-cigarettes. Why opponents say it doesn't add up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.
Among the statewide issues voters will decide this election, whether to raise taxes on tobacco and, for the first time, vaping products. We've got a couple of reporters joining us to talk about Proposition EE. CPR health reporter John Daly and Jesse Paul, who covers politics in Capitol Hill for the Colorado Sun. Welcome to you both. Hey, Avery. Jesse, you've done a lot of reporting on the forces that came together to get Prop EE on the ballot. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, John, tell us what Prop EE would do. Well, Avery, Prop EE would create a tax on nicotine products like electronic cigarettes, e-cigarettes, also known as vaping devices, and increase cigarette and tobacco taxes. You know, right now the state has no tax on vaping products. Colorado's current tax rate on cigarettes is 84 cents per pack, which is relatively low nationally. That ranks about uh, 39th among states. The proposal would incrementally raise taxes on cigarettes and other tobacco products over the next seven years. And how much money would Prop EE raise and where would it go? Uh, the money it would raise would go up as the tax rises into the hundreds of millions of dollars projected to be more than $200 million by uh, 2025. Initially, it would go to K-12 education, rural schools, tobacco education programs, and then a smaller portion to general state spending. And of the amount allocated for that, about a quarter has to be distributed to local governments and the rest uh, used for general state spending. And then in 2023, the breakdown shifts so that the vast bulk of the money would go to preschool programs. And then the next year, healthcare programs begin to receive a chunk of that money as well. And that includes funding for Medicaid and primary care, tobacco use prevention, children's health, and a variety of other healthcare programs that currently get cigarette and tobacco tax revenue. So it it evolves over time. So we're talking about a tax increase. By how much? Well, the current 84 cents per pack tax rate would gradually rise to $2.64 by July of 2027. The ballot measure also includes a minimum price requirement so that a pack of cigarettes could be sold for no less than $7 and $70 for a carton uh, beginning in 2021, and then by 2024, that goes up to no less than 750 a pack and $75 a carton. For vaping products, the measure would create a tax on nicotine products to match tax rates for tobacco products going up over time until 2027. And then other kinds of tobacco products like cigars, snuff, chewing tobacco, that kind of stuff, would also see incrementally raising taxes as well through 2027. All right, let's turn now to Jesse Paul with the Colorado Sun. Jesse, you uncovered some details of the origins of Prop EE. It's what opponents have called a backroom deal. Right, so this this proposition or this ballot initiative started off uh, as a bill in the state legislature and it dropped in the final days of the on-again, off-again legislature because of the coronavirus crisis. And it kind of surprised everybody in the Capitol uh, because it was such a massive piece of policy. It actually dropped the day, I think, before the legislature was initially supposed to shut down. Um, and, uh, you know, we found out afterwards that it, it came to fruition after negotiations uh, were, happened between the, the governor's office, between Democratic state lawmakers and um, health advocacy groups, and on top of that, this company, Altria, which is one of the world's largest tobacco conglomerates, and it's also uh, behind Marlboro cigarettes, so one of the most popular brands out there. And what are critics saying about all this? 
Well, critics point out that, you know, Altria was involved in this bill. Altria in years past has really fought tobacco tax increases in Colorado. They spent millions of dollars in 2017 to fight a measure that would have raised taxes on cigarettes. Um, And then all of a sudden they were involved in this bill and then they were neutral on it. So when you take a look at some of the aspects of this bill, uh, you can see that there are things that are in there that Altria actually would stand to benefit from. And that's really where uh, the, the consternation is focused. So what what are those benefits? So John was talking about the fact that, you know, cigarette taxes are going to go up, nicotine taxes are going to go up, tobacco taxes are going to go up under this. But there's actually one provision in the bill that lowers taxes for a certain kind of products called modified risk tobacco products. And it's a certain subset of products uh, that win FDA approval and can be marketed as being a little little less dangerous for folks. And there's only 12 products that actually have this designation so far, and four of them are, are made by an Altria subsidiary. And Altria, uh, some of the stakeholders that worked on this bill, said really pushed for this to be in the, in the legislation. So while all these other taxes are going to go up next year under uh, Proposition E, the taxes for modified uh, risk tobacco products would actually go down to 35% from the 40% they're at now. So since tobacco products and cigarettes would be sold for no less than $7 a pack starting in January, it sounds like Altria might have a competitive advantage if its products maybe cost less. Right. And so there's another um, another aspect of this that opponents really don't like, and that's that minimum uh, price floor provision. So discount cigarette brands, which you know make their money off of selling cheaper cigarettes than products like Marlboro, are really upset about this minimum price floor provision and point out that while other states have done this, have similar minimum price floor provisions, they've done it in a way to keep um, you know the market market competitive, right? So they raise the prices based off of what the price was currently. They don't set kind of a floor saying everything has to cost $7. So, you know, cigarette smokers will go to a to a convenience store and find a pack of Marlboros for $7 and the cheaper cigarettes for $7. Uh, the discount cigarette brands, you know, allege basically that people will just go for those Marlboros. And, and they've actually filed a lawsuit to challenge this um, and, and have this part of the bill or, or the ballot initiative invalidated should it pass. Has the state responded to the concerns that this was a deal for Altria or with Altria? So that's the really interesting thing here. Uh, you know, state lawmakers won't actually talk to me about the the bill and, and why it was drafted in the way it was because of this lawsuit that I just mentioned. The state uh, the state legislature's lawyers have kind of recommended that they stay out of it, not publicly comment while this lawsuit plays out. The governor hasn't really commented on it either. Um, and the health advocacy groups that help push this bill are also not really being too um, forthcoming about why different measures in the bill were put in there. Um, you know, I will say that it, it, this minimum price floor provision is aimed at reducing um, cigarette use and tobacco use uh, because as prices go up, use goes down. And also the modified risk tobacco product tax discount has been used in other states as a way to shift people from more harmful tobacco products to less harmful ones. But in those states, Altria is also, at least one of those states, Altria has also been part of those negotiations and pushed for that special discount. So, John, beyond the conflict and the controversy about how this measure got put on the ballot, give us the brief rundown of why backers of Prop EE say that voters should cast a yes vote and opponents say no. Well, as Jesse alluded to, uh, public health advocates have long said that raising taxes on tobacco is a good way to discourage people, especially young people, from picking up the habit, which is notoriously bad for one's health. And then, uh, you know, the opponents say that uh, hiking taxes and setting a minimum price purchase price on uh, these products uh, imposes a financial burden on those who consume them. Uh, Others uh, believe that uh, uh, 
raising taxes is just bad policy. A number of conservatives feel that way, and uh, they uh, uh, have been objecting to this uh, this deal that uh, Jesse was referring to. Um, so yeah, we have really a distinctive points of view on on both sides. Also on the the proponent side, they argue that the money will go to things that uh, would be good for the state, uh, funding for education and and uh, uh, pre-K education. And this is a good way to fund those programs, which are uh, top priority for the governor. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here. You bet. Thanks for having us. Jesse Paul from the Colorado Sun and CPR's health reporter John Daly. We've been talking about Prop EE, which voters statewide will decide this election. You can read about this measure and the other statewide ballot measures and candidates on our voter guide at CPR.org. Voters in Colorado have plenty of things to consider this election, jobs, health care, the coronavirus. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, it looks like climate change tops the list for many voters this year. Across Colorado and the country, a broad majority agrees. Climate change is real and it's a problem. That's been true since the 1990s. What's new is that for a growing segment of voters, it's the issue. 88-year-old Catherine Delanois says those people are late to the party. There's been enough about climate change for the last five years that you would think everybody would be on board. Climate change has been a top priority for Delanois for about three decades. That hasn't changed with the pandemic, even though it's more or less confined her to her home in Eagle, Colorado. Climate change is our Earth as we know it. I can understand being very worried about the pandemic, but I cannot understand not being worried about climate change. And Delanois isn't alone. This year, CPR News conducted three informal surveys to guide our election coverage. More than any other issue, people said climate and the environment would help determine their vote. Other scientific surveys have started to find similar results. I've never seen anything like this where an issue surged up like this. This is John Krosnick. Professor at Stanford University. And in the recent coronavirus crisis, he saw the chance for a sort of experiment. This year, people have lost jobs, lost loved ones, lost homes. In the past, some social scientists have said climate change is a luxury political issue. It matters to people who don't have to worry about things like food, income, health care, all concerns that could be worsened by a pandemic. But Krosnick hasn't seen a decrease in concern about climate change. In fact, if anything, we're seeing increases in many of the, of the indicators that we have of public belief in the existence and threat of climate change and support for policies to address it. Krosnick's most recent survey found a quarter of Americans say climate change is extremely personally important to their political decisions. The numbers are similar in Colorado. Nationally, that's a two-fold increase from 2013. And Krosnick says that matters. If you come to be passionate about climate change, you're making this very big commitment to gather information about the issue, to read every newspaper story you can come across. It's a sort of a constant hobby of yours. In other words, Krosnick says climate change has possibly become a political issue, something like abortion, only on the left. It's what voters ask about. It's why they give money. It's why they might vote in the first place. That's because it's personal. But the reasons aren't always the same. 
Take John Potoko from Denver. The 31-year-old isn't sure he'd describe himself as a single-issue climate voter. That's because he pays the most attention to issues around public transportation and dense housing. But if I, as I think about it, I'd like maybe I am because land use, transportation, affordable housing, all these kinds of things, they all have like a, a direct one-to-one tie for climate change. Buses, for example, could reduce traffic and carbon emissions. Leslie Nierad, a front-range landscaper, also says she isn't really worried about greenhouse gases. It's what warming could do to her favorite places. The state of the environment is personal to me because it's sort of like my refuge, you know. But while Nierad and Potoko have slightly different reasons for caring about climate change, they agree on one thing. They're both disappointed they have to choose between Cory Gardner and John Hickenlooper for U.S. Senate. All right, gentlemen, we are going to turn our attention to the issue of climate change. And just- In the recent race, both candidates have acknowledged the reality of global warming. Let's begin with a yes or no. Do you accept the scientific consensus that climate change is primarily due to human activity? Uh, Mr. Gardner will yes. begin. Mr. Hickenlooper? Yes. But Pitoko can't forgive Gardner for his Senate record. While Gardner has supported public lands conservation, he's voted against efforts to rein in emissions. Pitoko also struggles with Hickenlooper's track record as governor, specifically how he never tried to push Colorado away from cars. I would call Hickenlooper the lesser of two evils here. Pitoko is glad that now, as a Senate candidate, Hickenlooper sees the economy shifting away from fossil fuels. Yes, the challenge as any economy changes, is how do you make sure that you have the skills, training, the support, and get out ahead of it instead of... A lot of the pro-climate initiatives would be a huge boon to our economy, I think. Instead of being known for oil and gas, we could be the ones known for renewable tech. And beyond this election, Patoko says he'll be looking for climate candidates who think like a growing segment of voters. Candidates who don't see climate action as an economic risk, but as a necessity and an opportunity. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. It only took hours for the fatal shooting of a protester in Denver earlier this month to rocket through the political echo chambers of social media. The death of Lee Keltner is just the latest violent incident related to ongoing protests around the country and how each side has reacted to it says a lot about polarization in the country and what could lie ahead. CPR's Andrew Kenny and Denverite's David Sachs have been looking into the wide impacts of the shooting, the histories of the victim and the man accused of killing him. They're here with me now. Hi, Andrew and David. Hello. Hi, Avery. Andy, this incident has gotten a huge amount of coverage in Colorado, but in case people haven't been following it closely, remind us what led up to the shooting. So the shooting occurred at the end of what has been described as dueling rallies, Essentially, a group called the United American Defense Force, which uh, is an armed group that portrays itself as countering supposed leftist violence, announced that it was going to have a a patriot muster where uh, people would assemble in Civic Center Park. And there was a counter demonstration organized to try to shout those people down and push them out. And Dave, what do we know about the shooting itself? We know a lot because so many people were filming. It really started with an altercation on the plaza between Denver Central Library and the Art Museum. There was a guy wearing a Black Guns Matter shirt. He'd been trying to pick fights with right-wing quote-unquote patriots all day. And he and Lee Keltner got into it as people were walking away from the park. They had some words, but a bystander ultimately separated them. And then Keltner noticed he was being filmed by a Nine News producer. He started towards the producer saying he would 
F him up if he didn't stop filming. That's when the security guard hired by Nine News, Matthew Dolliff, intervened and tussled with Keltner. Keltner smacked him. Dolliff pulled a gun from his waist. Keltner sprayed pepper spray in Dolliff's direction as Dolliff shot him. And that security guard, Matthew Dolliff, was arrested and has been charged with second-degree murder. And you both report that almost immediately, rumors were spreading online about what happened. Andy, what were people saying? So this was the third time this summer and this fall that you've seen a fatal protest-related shooting. So people were primed to really uh, dig into it and and post quickly about it. What we saw was real-time misinformation, disinformation, and some actual information spreading right after the killing. Um, First, the Denver Post mistakenly reported that the shooter was a left-wing protester. They later retracted that statement. But immediately, you saw these variants of that information spreading across the web, people talking about another Antifa murder, supposedly. Uh, There was even a false tweet that claimed that John Teagan, the organizer of the conservative, conservative rally, had been killed himself which was absolutely not true. And, you know, later, like Dave said, it turns out that Matthew Dolph was actually working as a security guard, not a protester, but that hasn't stopped rampant speculation since the shooting about supposed political motives in the killing. And you looked into Dolph's background. What did you find? Well, as usual, there are some nuggets of fact that have become the basis of some really extreme claims. Dolph has spent his whole adult life here in Colorado, He had some financial trouble, went bankrupt early in his 20s due to medical debt. He's owned guns for most of his adult life, and at times he has showed an interest in leftist politics. Uh, According to his Facebook account, you can see him attending stuff like Occupy Denver and a rally for Bernie Sanders. In recent years, he had moved to a ranch where he raised poultry and sold dogs with his family. But what we have not seen is any evidence for these Uh, really rampant claims that he was part of some larger group or that he was acting out some kind of political motivation in this shooting. And Dave, what have you learned about the man who was killed, Lee Keltner? Uh, Lee was a husband and a father. Uh, One of his sons was there and saw him get shot that day. He used to be in the Navy. He owned a Western hat making business. He was a big time biker, motorcycles, not Schwinn's. His friend said he was a goofball, fun to be around, shirt off your back kind of guy, but not someone you'd want to cross. He was seen at a rally in Bertha this summer tussling with someone advocating to defund the police at a protest, but it's unclear how that altercation started. And he does have an old police record. He pleaded guilty to an assault 20 years ago in Weld County and violated violated a restraining order in 2008. His family wouldn't speak with me, but friends told me he you know, he always had proud convictions about America, that he was a patriot, and that he was inspired to attend rallies recently because of this summer's protest against police. So socialists and communists have had loud voices at some of these rallies, and some people obviously see those political views as un-American. His friend Joe Versman isn't so interested in the politics of it all, though. He told me he's seen the pictures of what happened, and they break his heart. But it's like what what transpired, what put Lee where he was at, what put them where they were at, why were they there, what were they doing? You know, all this other stuff's coming out about the security guard guy or whatever being Antifa and not being security and all this other stuff. And I'm like, none of that makes a difference. This man pulled the trigger. My brother's dead. Dave, you talked with an expert in the psychology of political polarization. Did he give you any context for what led up to the standoff and the way that it's been twisted online? 
Yeah, people, as Andy was saying, immediately online started digging up old posts from Dolph's social media accounts um, and framed Dolph as an Antifa assassin taking down an American patriot. President Trump retweeted a claim along those lines, and another conspiracy theory has also gained traction online, and that is uh, that the media staged the conflict uh, leading up to the shooting. Meanwhile, the late Keltner has become somewhat of a martyr and a hero in some far-right circles. Leif Van Boven from the University of Colorado put some things into perspective, I think. No one knows exactly what Dolph or Keltner uh, were thinking during those critical seconds. What people do know is that an extremely violent incident happened in a highly charged political setting three weeks before a critical election. And so members of the public, including right-wing online influencers, are left to fill in the blanks. So we put these things together and you know, you, you couldn't build a better recipe for having kind of polarized reactions. So people are defensive, angry, scared. They already exist in a polarized climate and it's an ambiguous situation. So everything gets filtered through their political lens. And the result, Van Boven says, is that instead of being sorry this happened, each side looks to blame the other. He said that until political leaders on the left and right clearly denounce violence, there's not much room for a man's life to be mourned. One thing I found interesting in your story is that you talked to a congressional candidate who happened to be at the protest that organizers called the Patriot Muster, and he was close to the shooting. He said some similar things to that professor. Yeah, so Casper Stockham is a Republican running to represent the northern and western Denver suburbs in Congress. He told me political leaders on the left and the right need to act like adults in the room, as he put it, and help de-escalate things rather than escalate them because the criminal justice system is just starting its work. What I see and saw was a senseless death that I don't want to just be dismissed. You know, we just we need to tone things down quite a bit in our in our nation, but justice needs to be done and, and served. We've been talking about the wider implications of this shooting online and for the public, but what about the groups that are showing up at these confrontational protests from the right and from the left? How have they reacted, Andy? Well, people on uh, in in all the various groups are saying that they're going to continue to show up. I talked to Republican State Representative Mark Baisley. He's a supporter of Tegan's group, the United American Defense Force. I asked him, uh, you know, should conservatives keep showing up in the streets, given what's just happened? And he responded that it's, quote, essential that people stand up to what he sees as this left-wing threat. Absolutely. It's, it's not just productive. It's, it's essential. Whoever it is, is the evil. And we need to stand up to that evil. We can't cower to them. On the left, activists are largely disavowing the shooter and other people involved. Um, they say they're determined, but they say at the same time they're determined not to let these right-wing groups become a public presence. Uh, this is James Rotten. That's a pen, a pen name for a member of the Denver Communists. The other concern of right-wing um, uh, backlash is, you know, it remains, to be honest. But, uh, it, you know, this is the environment that we're in now. And, and our attitude has been that we're not going to save ourselves from them by cowering. So again, a lot of those same groups plan to be back out there in the future. You heard both men say that they weren't going to cower. Well, Andy and Dave, thank you both for being here to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you, Avery. 
Denverite reporter David Sachs and CPR's Andrew Kenny about the shooting of a protester in downtown Denver earlier this month and how it's fueling political anger and false reporting online. Finally today, the spotlight is on Liot and the Sirens. The new Denver-based band wrote and released their debut single during COVID-19 isolation, but it emphasizes themes of connection and oneness. Denver group Liot and the Sirens performing Meet the Sea. Our colleagues at ND1023 recently chose them as a local 303 artist. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill, Colorado Matters from CPR News.